Welcome, friends. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. Welcome to The Human Voice. You know, here at The Human Voice, we talk about the intersection of technology, of psychology, and of spirituality. Those are my three favorite things to talk about. It's what I've devoted my life to. And today, we're going to go into spirituality. I have Brian McLaren with me today. He's a former college English teacher. He was a pastor for 24 years now. He's an author, an activist, a public theologian, and he's a frequent guest lecturer for gatherings across the U.S. and internationally. His work's been covered in Time Magazine, USA Today, The New York Times, Newsweek, CNN, and many other media outlets. He's the author of more than 15 books, including Faith After Doubt, Do I Stay Christian?, and A New Kind of Christian. He's a faculty member of the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation. McLaren lives in Florida. And today, specifically, I want to talk to Brian about his latest book. It's called Do I Stay Christian? And how about this for a subtitle? A Guide for Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. So you're... you're calling today and the human voice on the other side of the mic is in Florida. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. How's the weather going? Yeah. Beautiful late summer day. Anytime in late summer, we don't have hurricane warnings. We're in great shape. and It's actually been a beautiful summer here. That's awesome. As I mentioned in the intro there, Brian, this intersection of technology, psychology, and spirituality is kind of where I live and breathe. And I know that that's at least a couple of those uh, for you at least, at least from following you and listening to you, you have a love for human development and psychology and specifically spirituality as well. Am I reading that right? You are. And although I'm certainly no expert in technology, I feel like we are all part of a huge psychological and spiritual experiment that's going on right now because there's no question that our interactions with with technology is deeply interwoven with our psychology and spirituality. So it makes perfect sense to me that you would be interested in those three and that listeners would be drawn to those three. Yeah, it's where we where a lot of us live our lives every day. I, I, I have quoted this before. It's a biologist. He just passed away. Wilson, I forget his first name. He's got a famous quote that I love. He says, the problem that we all deal with is that we have paleolithic brains, medieval governments, and godlike technology. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, we're all just trying to navigate this new world that we find ourselves in. So your book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. You know, Brian, one of the quotes, and I'm going to go through some things as I've read the book, and it's fantastic. I think it's probably personally I think it's one of the best books that you've written in the in in the context of the research I think the history some of the psychology that's there but also just the practicality and this quote that I'm about to read here for me if I could say what sums up the book as someone who is all of those depending on what day a doubter someone who's disappointed and disillusioned this next quote for me really puts it in context, and it says, perhaps the most important issue is not do I stay or go, but rather how can I live a meaningful, authentic life of integrity, whether I remain in the church or not? Mm -hmm. 
What what was the genesis for this book? I think I know, but I'd love to hear it from you. Sure. Well, in some ways, I said at the beginning, I have a, a dear friend who passed away as the book was being written. And when I imagined the conversation he and I would have had, I think he would have said, this is the book you've been trying to write your whole life. Mm. Because I I have had a sense since I was, even before I was a teenager, that this religion I had inherited from my parents and larger family, and in a broader sense from the culture, because, you know, Christianity is so deeply embedded with all of American culture in, in various ways. Th- this religion I inherited had great treasures and also had some serious unresolved issues, <laughs> mm. and that it had the capacity to simultaneously make my life better and help me become a better person and also help me become a worse person. And, uh, and I think what's happening each generation that's passed in my lifetime, I'm, I'm 66, I think more and more young people have decided not to stick with the, their inherited religion. This is true in Islam and in Judaism and in Hinduism and so on, in other religious traditions as well. Maybe for some of the reasons of that, I bet it was E.O. Wilson. I bet it was E.O. Wilson, that's right. Yes, from his quote. But the fact is a whole lot of people are finding out that that the harm that their religion is doing to them and others in the world at large is so great that for ethical reasons, they feel they have to leave it. And I'm sympathetic, empathetic to feelings. And yet I'm also aware that we, we solve some personal problems. Perhaps if we leave our religion, we might create some other personal problems, but there are larger problems that we've got to solve mm. whether we stay in or go and we don't escape we don't escape all those problems by escaping our religious identity so th- that whole milieu is what gave gave rise to the book i know you've been you were a pastor for 24 years and, and you're still involved in faith and specifically christianity so i know you have chosen to to stay and but you talk a lot about and to people who haven't, people on the fringes, and you still wrestle with these questions. It's apparent as well. So I want to talk about something specific, Brian, that is a phrase that has comforted me for the last several years. And it's the phrase of, I believe, chapter, oh gosh, 24, 25, and it's include and transcend. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a phrase originally, I think it comes from a really interesting philosopher named Ken Wilbur. He, he said transcend and include, and many of us say, you know, it, it might be better to put the include first, but either way you put it. The idea is that in human development, some people think of stages of human development as you're in a first stage, and then you leave that behind, and you move into a second stage, and then you leave that behind, you move into a third stage, and so on. But what has always seemed to me a better metaphor is not like moving from one room to another in in a house or one car to another in a train, but thinking about the rings of a tree. And and when a tree enters a new growing season, a larger ring grows that includes the the previous rings, but now expands into new territory. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a better understanding of, uh, of how human development works, both for us as individuals and us as societies and even as a species, we we grow by not leaving the past behind, but by not being limited by it, using it as our launch pad instead of our ceiling. 
Mm. And this, this of course, creates a lot of problems for a lot of our religious communities. I mean, it's so easy for me to imagine it being otherwise. It's so easy for me to imagine it being the opposite. But a whole lot of people in a whole lot of religious communities have the idea that the past is the ceiling. You're not allowed to go beyond what was said at some point in the past. And uh, and I think what that ends up doing is, just like we speak of a glass ceiling, stopping people from growth in their career, we might say there's a stained glass ceiling that stops a lot of people from their their deeper growth as as human beings. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about human development. And, and I believe that something happens to us. And you talk about this in the book. But I'd, I'd love to unpack this with you a little bit because I think about it and I observe it a lot. Something happens to us usually in the second half of life where you either have an expanding of your belief systems mm -hmm. and a loosening of the rigidity or there is a doubling down and a refusal to see or acknowledge anything that is bigger or that might challenge the belief system that one's that one holds on to that is so obvious and it's very once you see it and experience it and it's so endemic to who we are as humans would you say in your experience brian that that most people either double down or do they expand yeah it's complicated, isn't it, Bob? It is. I, I have the same observation. By the way, one way that I might explain that observation is to say that we all have confirmation bias, meaning we all like to reject information that would, reforce a, that would force us to rethink what we currently think. And we all like to accept information that reinforces what we already think and builds into what we already think. To put it in more religious terms, none of us likes to repent. None of us likes to have second thoughts about our current assumptions. And I think what you say about the second half of life, I think for people who have, who, who have never challenged their own confirmation bias, people who've never learned to think critically about their own assumptions and the assumptions of the group or groups that they're part of, in a certain sense, people may reach a point where they can't do it anymore. In other words, mm -hmm. they, they have built the walls of confirmation bias so high that they no longer are even capable of seeing beyond them. I don't mean to be uncharitable here, but the word we have for those kinds of people is old fools. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, an old fool is a different kind of animal than a young fool. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, and so so people who are incapable, they literally have lost the ability to think critically about their assumptions. And, and maybe some earth-shattering event could make them think differently. And, and we sometimes see that happen, thank, you know, thankfully. But, but others of us, I think, reach points in our lives where we have to challenge our, our previous assumptions. If I could just go on a quick tangent about this, Please. knowing that you're interested in human development. And psychology. I had done a lot of research, and in fact, my last two books both reflect this in different theories of human development. And it turns out that a lot of the original generation of research in stages of human development, you can go back to Jean Piaget, and you can go back to uh, Freud, and, and, and any number of other of the sort of 20th century, late, late 19th, early 20th century thinkers on this, Almost all of their research subjects were white people in a white dominant culture. And, and, and very often they were focused on educated men because a lot of PhD research is done on undergraduates. So, and, and they were majority men. And in the mid 20th century to the late 20th century, 
there were two kinds of critiques of that traditional research on human development. First was feminist critiques. And, and what a lot of women pointed out is that when women grow up in a men's world from a very young age, they sort of see the blind spots that the men don't see. <laughs> in other words, the, the games that men play, the rules of the game, men have sort of bought into those rules. And a lot of women don't buy into those rules or they're shut out of those rules. And so in a certain sense, they develop critical thinking about the assumptions of their culture. Mm. And then there was another wave of research that was about identity development for African-Americans, Korean-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Mestizo, and, and it's been done in other countries as well. And, and of course, the observation there is that if you're a minority, the rules of the game that the majority don't even think about because it's just the way life is, it's not that way for them. And so in a certain sense, they're pushed to have critical thinking about the assumptions of their society at a younger age. And I think this is a particular problem for white people in a white majority mm. culture and for men in a male majority culture and for Christians in a Christian majority culture. And it, it contributes us to us uh, thinking we're wise uh, mm. as we get older, but in many ways just being set in our ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... I learn so much from my kids and I have three of them and you could kind of say they're in three different generations, but you know, they're, they're Gen Z and millennials for the most part and in different stages. And I learned so much from them and hopefully they've learned something from me. I can't imagine going through life thinking that I don't have anything more to learn or to not embrace mystery, that's very foreign to me. But I do, I have friends, I have family members, I have people around me, neighbors, who don't seem to see the world that way. Yes, And I think that this idea, uh, the title of your book, Do I Stay Christian, depending on where you are generationally, is an interesting question because my children and people their age who were brought up in the 90s and early 2000s are now looking at many of their parents and saying, this is not what you taught me. This is not what we learned in Sunday school. This is not caring for the orphan. And this is not the story of the Good Samaritan. This is not a loving, caring, you know, selfless Christ that you're talking about. So what is this thing that you're calling Christianity? Do I even want to be a part of it? anymore. Are you running into to people like that? Absolutely. Yes. I, I mean, the, the fact is we are the, people who came of age in the 90s, especially here in the United States, they came of age in the era of the Jerry Falwells and Newt Gingrich. And, you know, they, they or that, this is maybe even before they came of age, but they, they their childhood was framed by this uh, what many people have called a conservative resurgence. I grew up evangelical Christian, and what happened starting in the 90s, it, it really accelerated. It had roots before that, uh, back in the 80s and even late 70s. But there was this conservative resurgence. You could say evangelicals always had fundamentalist grandparents, or very often had fundamentalist grandparents. And and in a sense, fundamentalism took over evangelicalism during those years. Something very similar happened in the Catholic Church. Vatican II had happened, opened up 
huge vistas of new possibility for the church. And then a group of Catholic leaders, many of whom are on the U.S. Supreme Court now, came up to the fore, and they wanted to reverse Vatican II. They felt Vatican II opened the door to bad things, and they wanted to go backwards to better days in the past. And what both of these groups in in two different wings of Christianity had in common was a kind of nostalgia and a fear of where the culture was going. And, And when you're brought up with a kind of faith, and you know, it's true in Christianity, but there are Muslim examples of this, Jewish examples of this, Hindu, and so on. When you grow up in an era where your faith is moving backwards and your life is moving you forwards, my gosh, you feel the tension really, really unavoidably. Yeah, so I, I think this is a, a real thing. I I also should say that I think there is a dimension of this <clears throat> where the way that White people, and especially white Christians, and I, I, I have to talk about race because I think part of what we have to wake up to is that American history has been deformed and formed by its racial history, mm. and American Christian and religious history the same. I, I, I don't know if I can, I'll try to say this succinctly. What happened is white people had a deal they made with each other in general, which is, we have a set of rules for us, and we don't allow people of other religions. White Christians made these kind of deals. You know, we we tolerate people of other religions, but we certainly don't welcome them to the table as equals. And we tolerate people of other races, but we know who runs the show. And and what started to happen in my lifetime is that more and more white people said, yeah, we don't, want to, we don't want to play the white game. We would like the table to be open for everybody as equals. And what happened was that conservative white Christians, Catholic and Protestant, decided to start treating liberals, anyone they called liberal, the same way they used to treat people of other religions and other mm, races. That's interesting. And, and I, I think what that has done is create this sort of aha moment for an awful lot of younger people who grow up white and Christian. And what they say is, oh, I like what has been a rude awakening for me has been obvious to them from, from their childhood. Yeah. Sorry to go on that long tangent, but that might be, I, I think there's some validity to that that could help people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really good. In your book, talking about continuing to talk about this, kind of human development, personal development theme. You have a chart that I just love. It's super helpful. And on the top of the chart, if you would imagine four different columns, you it breaks it down into the stages of life. And you call them, the first one is simplicity. The next one is complexity. The next one is perplexity. And the last one is harmony. I know that's complicated and there's a lot of things in that chart, but can you unpack where you came up with that and how it helps to frame and understand these journeys of human development that when we're asking questions like this of I'm questioning and I'm expanding in my faith questions and I don't know if I can stay in this container that I've been in most of my life, I find these these four columns really, really helpful. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, the quick part of this from my biography is, you know, in my undergraduate years in college a long, long time ago, 
when I just had basic exposure to psychology, I learned that there were a lot of human developmental theorists who had different stage theories to describe human development, you know, from Freud's or oral, anal, Oedipal, and so on, to uh, Piaget's a little more sophisticated stages to, well, any, any number of other phases, stage theories. And, and when I, I was an English major, and I remember when I studied William, the poetry of the great romantic poet William Blake, he had a kind of three-stage framework where he talked about innocence, experience, and higher innocence. Hmm. Or, or a second innocence. And later I found out that the great French philosopher Paul Ricoeur had naivete, loss of naivete, and second naivete. And I started seeing this sort of pattern. In, in graduate school, I was exposed to the work of an adolescent intellectual developmental theorist named William Perry. And he had a nine-stage framework, but it could be simplified into four stages. And those four stages match so much with what I had was sort of thinking about. And when I tried to adapt it to talk to people about their faith development, not just their intellectual development, I came up with these four terms, simplicity, which is basically the way we're all raised to some degree, that the world is simple. There's things that are safe, dangerous, us, them, friend, enemy, right, wrong, easy, difficult, delicious, yucky. You know, we, we, we as children, we learn to put things in, in those categories. And, um, and that's simplicity, uh, putting things into two categories. And it's authority figures who tell us this when we're children because we, we're not old enough to know it. We, and, and some things are too dangerous to figure out on your own, like I wonder if I can play ball out in the street in a, uh, on a busy highway. So we trust authority figures to tell us. So authority and, and dualism really describe the heart of stage one. And it's a necessary stage. Sure. Stage two, complexity. Uh, a lot of us grow into in our adolescent years as we get out of the house and we encounter other families and other communities and other religions and other cultures. And we realize, oh, there are a whole lot of those... People have different dualisms. <laughs> People have different sets of rules of what's right and wrong and who's us and who's them. And so when we have to learn the pragmatic challenge of navigating competing dualisms, that's when we're dealing with complexity. I call it a pragmatic stage. And, and we're increasingly learning to think uh, on our own, to think for ourselves. If you could say stage one is dependent on authority figure stage two is looking for independence. And then uh, a lot of people stay in stage one their whole lives. More and more people, I think, are thrust into stage two at an earlier and earlier age. When people in stage two begin to realize that the us that they're part of has problems, that the ways that they can critique the them can also be turned to critique us, that creates a whole new ball game for people. That's what I call the stage of perplexity, which is a stage you could call it of skepticism, relativism, where we, where we relativize our own inheritance and our own assumptions. A lot of people get there and stay there their whole life. I think more and more people are moving beyond that perplexity into a space, I call it harmony, where we learn to integrate those first three stages and where we learn to say, oh, I don't have to hate those people who are at an, a different stage. I can just say, that's where they are. And, and that's how the world looks to them. And the ability to allow other people to be where they are is a, it seems to me, a new, a new skill set that people mm. develop in that fourth stage.
Mm, mm. I love how you've built this chart. And under each one of those, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony, I'm going to give my listeners just a sample. You have a list of, of different things that we encounter in our life. And I'm just going to read a couple of them because I think it's so helpful. So on this chart, let's say key values, that's one of them. Under simplicity, which is the first stage, key values, being right, clean, good, obeying authority, staying faithful to tradition, remaining loyal to you, to the end group. And then the next stage is complexity, and so key values may look like being free and independent, winning, succeeding, achieving goals. And then the third stage, perplexity under key values, it's being fair, acknowledging bias and mistakes, facing, facing inconvenient truths. And then the last stage, harmony, which I love, key value is being compassionate, seeking justice, and the common good. And, and that whole progression is just beautiful, and it feels, it feels right. It feels like the way of love and maturity and growth as a human being. You have lots of things, assumptions, identity, belonging. I love this one. God is. Simplicity. First stage, supreme being. Almighty protector, warrior, lawgiver, patron, patriarch. And then the next stage is complexity, encourager and guide who can help me prosper and succeed. Perplexity, the next stage, myth or a mystery. And then harmony is loving presence, creative wisdom known through experience and metaphor. Um, and you just go on and on, and there's several of them there. But I just love the way that you've laid that out because I think what many of us struggle with in these different stages is it is this is the problem me? Am I have I have I gone too far? Am I going down a wrong path? And we kind of struggle between those two stages. It's like you got to hop over that fence and it's not always an easy progression, right? It's not smooth, especially from, from perplexity to harmony. So I, I found that really helpful. So thank you for that. I'm so glad you found it helpful. And, and I think the reason this way of thinking has helped me too, is it's helped me understand why, why life is so hard sometimes. Mm. Because very often we're part of a group, let's say a group that really works well for people in stage two. And then when I start moving into stage three, my group that's meant the world to me doesn't understand me anymore. And they see me as a problem. Mm. And, and as you say, is something wrong with me or, or maybe can I, or is something wrong with them? Or maybe it's just, I can say, Oh, okay. I'm dealing with a new set of challenges. They're, they're not dealing with that quite yet. And uh, I think it does help us have some compassion on ourselves. And Yes. You know, I want to jump to the recycling of words and definitions. I think that is so important, especially when we might be questioning faith. And so you talk about the recycling of words and definitions. And one of them, which is a big one for Christians, is this term salvation. And you talk about recycling it as liberation, which you say is the original meaning anyway. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's 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 ironic for me as a, a, a you know a pastor as my sort of main career life that and and I grew up in the church and I was sure I knew what salvation meant you know and it had to do with Christian doctrines of original sin and had to do with something called atonement theories and 
and it had to do with my destination after death. And I remember very clearly when I was a pastor and I was preaching in through the book of Genesis, and I realized that people in Genesis didn't believe in heaven and hell, <laughs> and they didn't have a concept of the fall or original sin. And then I started thinking, oh no, I started thinking through the whole Hebrew scriptures. I thought, it doesn't look like any of these people have a belief in the afterlife. And if they do, it's certainly not divided into heaven and hell. And I started thinking, why would they even think religion was necessary? For me, the whole purpose of religion was about what happens after you die. And, and then I remember in the midst of that quandary, I realized that for Jewish people, the word salvation gets a meaning in the book of Exodus because what God saved the people from was slavery in Egypt. When you save people from slavery, you liberate them. And so that word salvation at its core meaning in Jewish history was liberation from slavery. To be saved, to be set free from the oppression of your fellow human beings. And, and then the word broadened to be like if you were, if your life was controlled by a disease, well, to be made well was to be liberated from the disease. So this idea of liberation was really at the core. Oh my goodness, once you see that, you can't unsee it. And, and it starts to unravel a whole lot of things and make a whole lot of other things suddenly make a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. That, that <laughs> if you had to pick one word to, 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 to just mix the whole thing up, that would be it, right? Because so many of us were brought up in those environments where the whole of faith, the whole foundation was built on salvation. Are you saved? Do you have salvation in Christ? And what you're saying is if if we can learn to cycle those words and re-understand them in those maybe in those fra- that those phases of perplexity and harmony, we will find that our faith is not something that we always have to fully walk away from, but that we can actually embrace in a brand new way. And that we can have integrity and we can have meaningful, authentic experiences in communities without all the baggage that we brought with us. And I think that's, that's the beautiful part about your work is you allow those of us to say, you know what, it doesn't have to be an either or thing. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. But actually, you can find things and you can redefine, not that you're making up your own meanings, but actually what you're saying is if you go back to the original meaning, you'll find that that your faith could look very differently. So I, I really appreciate that. In chapter 27, I love the title of this, and you quote actually a mutual friend of ours. It's entitled, Stay Loyal to Reality. And you mentioned the term reality-based community. And in that chapter, you quote my friend and yours, David Dark, who says, sin is active flight from a lived realization of available data. I would love to talk with you about this because I just got excited reading this chapter. Stay loyal to reality. What was your intention with that chapter? Well, one of the problems that we have right now, both in sort of the religious sphere and in the secular, political, and even economic sphere, is that we have an awful lot of people 
who are super, super attracted, enthralled, uh, energized by what seem to everybody else to be conspiracy theories. And they've, and, and this is one of the places where technology has an interesting intersection because yep. technology can expose us to information we wouldn't have been exposed to before. You know, you, you would have had to get in a car or, or, or some other form of transportation and go to a university library to find information that would challenge some of your assumptions. Now, you it's on your phone. You can find it within 10 seconds if you know how to do a Google search. But interestingly, technology has also given us the ability to find people who are saying what we want to hear. And, and it, as people say, go down the rabbit hole with them to enter into a circle of people who all think the way I want to think. Describe a version of reality I wish were true that makes me feel good in some way. And whether this is white supremacists or flat earthers or climate change deniers or misogynists or uh, whatever, people can find other people who will validate a way of seeing the world that everyone outside of that little group will say is silly and wrong and obvious and, and a fantasy. And so it, it, when you start to realize how powerful that can be, it it, one of the things it does is it scares you a little bit because you think, how do I know that I'm not just, that, that my ideas are not just the ideas of some little in group right. that has reinforced certain things we want to hear. And, and, I, and, and this is a big deal in both religion and politics right now, but also in economics because we, there's, if we take the environmental crisis seriously, it challenges our economic assumptions in ways that many people, you know, they'll just put their hands over their ears and run out the door before they'll even be able to think about these things. They're so disturbing to us. And what that does to me is say the, the desire, the desire to be in touch with reality is if we don't cultivate that desire, we render ourselves susceptible and and if we don't monitor and we throw away ideas, well, it's, we, we talked earlier about confirmation bias. We will find ourselves walled into a little prison cell and we'll need liberation from, mm. from, that, from that bubble. How, how do you cultivate that? Because one, you say, you mentioned the term reality-based community. I, I'm assuming what you're implying there, and, I, and, and you go on in the chat for talk about it, is... The way that you guard yourself against that is by, number one, turning off and getting away and spending some time away from those echo chambers online and, and on nightly news, but also surrounding yourselves with people who have very different opinions that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, who might share different faiths. It, would you say that's the answer to, to, to keep safe from that? I think so. You know, I, I just actually wrote a little article about this the other day where I referred to some work done by a couple of philosophers, and now I, I'm forgetting their term, but I, I remember the meaning of their term. I just don't remember the term. But there is something that happens when I meet another human being, and this other human being tries to tell me something that they see that I don't see. And when I say, you don't count, you're mm -hmm. not a Bible-believing Christian. You don't count. 
you're not a Democrat. You don't count. You're not a conservative, Republican, whatever. And, and the dismissal of the testimony of a fellow human being to say, you have nothing to say to me. It seems to me that's very, very dangerous. And this is where, in a sense, the very essence of the golden rule has a protective element to it. If I want to treat someone else the way I would want to be treated, then I don't want other people to believe what I say just because I say it, but I do at least want them to take seriously what I say as a fellow human being. I owe every other human being that same kind of status. So if I could give two quick examples, I was a senior in high school when one of my very, very best friends came out to me as gay. He was the first person I knew well that had come out to me or, or that I even that, that ever talked to me about sexual orientation. And I remember thinking, he is a good person. And mm. I know what my church says about him. They say he's making a choice and he's an abomination to God. He's a good person. I can't just throw him under the bus and write him off. And so I had to live with that tension. I didn't know what to do with it, but at least I refused to resolve it by throwing him away. Yes. Mm. Um, and I think about some years later, <laughs> I had such a funny night. I had parked at a public parking garage and I didn't see the sign that said it closed at 5 p.m. on a Sunday. So I come back at about eight o'clock and my car is locked in a parking garage. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get home? And there was a little number that you could call. So I called the number. Well, the parking lot attendant lived in an apartment nearby and I, he had to get dressed and come back down and get me out of the parking garage. And it turns out he was... Muslim. He was dressed in Pakistani traditional clothing, and he was the kindest human being I'd met. And I needed a kind human being to help me because it was my own fault for not reading the sign. And while we waited, because he had to wait for somebody to come and unlock the, the, the garage, while we waited, we just chatted. And I thought of all the horrible things I'd been told about Muslims. Mm. And now I'm confronted with an actual Muslim who has gotten me out of a stupid pickle that I made for myself. And those sort of experiences, I think, are part of what keep us humble enough to be willing to face realities that we haven't faced before. That's a great segue, Brian, into my last question, which I would love for you to wax eloquently, as you always do. Why is it important for you to recognize, engage with, and when I say you, all of us, to recognize, engage with, and honor other faith traditions for the purposes of uniting for the common good? Oh my, what, a, what an important question, Bob. I, I Back in 2007, I wrote a book called Everything Must Change, and in that book, I wanted to understand what were the biggest problems in the world. So I, I actually spent a whole year just researching uh, human catastrophe theory <laughs> and, and reading everything I could about what are the biggest and most dangerous problems. And I came up with three through my research, and the three led to a fourth. The planet, poverty, and peace. The planet that we're living unsustainably with the planet. Poverty that a tiny minority of people own a huge percentage of the wealth, which gives them a huge percentage of power. And that creates a world that's 
unsustainable for the poor and for the rich alike. So the planet, poverty, and then the third is peace. If you have gross, if you have planetary instability, you're going to have droughts and famines and people starving and mass migration. And if you have gross economic inequality, then you're going to have people fighting. And when you have people fighting in a world with nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, we're in deep trouble. Mm. So those three problems it seems to be our existential threats. The fourth problem is that we would hope that religion would help us with the first three, but very often religion is making the first three worse. And so when you see those as real problems that we need to be liberated from, then you realize Christians can't solve these problems alone. Muslims Mm -hmm. can't solve these problems alone. If Christians and Muslims don't work together, together Christians and Muslims make up over 50% of the world's population. If Christians and Muslims can't work together on these problems, everybody in the world is going to suffer. And so suddenly you realize, yeah, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, Sikhs, atheists, agnostics, everybody, we have a a common, uh, we share one small planet and there are a whole lot of us. And we, and, and this is one of the many reasons I cannot give up on religion. Mm. Um, because I think religion, although it's often a force that makes things worse, we need re- uh, we need the best of our religious traditions across traditions to mobilize as many of us as possible to stop caring just about our personal interests, our religious interests, our racial interests, our national interests, our social class interests, our political parties' interests, and to, to mobilize us to care about the well-being of our neighbor and of the planet. That's a great, that's a great place to wind down. I just want to thank you. You're doing important work, Brian. Keep doing it. We need it. We need your voice because it's really important to not just wrestle with these, these questions. Do I stay Christian? But actually put some framework and put some understanding around what the questions even are. Because I think when someone says, do I stay Christian? There's a lot of questions under, under that. And it all depends on where you come from what generation you're in, what trauma you may have endured or not, lots of things. So I bet, I know that you could keep writing <laughs> about this for a long time, and I'm, I'm sure you plan on it. So thank you for your work. It's, it matters. And How can people... You. Go ahead. Oh, can I just, I just want to say, and thank you for your work as a podcaster, because it's people like you who are bringing these conversations into people's earbuds or radio, car radios or whatever. And we really, really need these conversations. So thank you. Thank you. How can people get a hold of you, Brian? It's brianmclaren.net. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's the easiest way. And I have links to Twitter and Facebook and so on there. I, I'm probably most active on Twitter, but my website, brianmclaren.net. Yes. And the book, the most recent book is Do I Stay Christians? A Guide, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusion. You can pick it up on Amazon or wherever you, you purchase your books. And I highly, highly recommend it. Brian, thank you. And until next time, have a great sunny day in South Florida. Until next time. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks.